0: Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute.
1: And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate and an MBSR teacher and trainer.
0: Hello. Hello, John. How are you?
1: <laughs> I'm doing well, Doc. Good to see you.
0: Great to see you as well. Uh, you
1: know, this is our uh, our virgin broadcast, our virgin podcast. So yes. uh, I, th- yes. uh, we, I think we, we thought it might be a good idea to talk about what brought us to the Dharma, to the Buddha Dharma, and yes. how yes. maybe how it's impacted us to some degree, although that will be an ongoing discussion. Um, so... I'm curious because we've never actually talked about this in any great detail. So, I'm going to let you start that, that story.
0: It sounds great, uh, John. I You know, it's one of these things where uh, a number of times I've tried to sort of think to myself how all of this started. And I, it's hard for me to figure it out because I, I for as long as I can remember, I've been interested in Buddhism to some degree. I think I must have first heard about it when I was a kid. Back in New York and probably through Zen and through Japanese art and through Japanese aesthetic, because it was sort of all around where when I grew up, my parents were interested in that kind of thing. They they have Japanese prints on their walls and things like that. And. I remember going to the, uh, the, the Metropolitan Museum when I was a kid and looking at the Japanese art and thinking how beautiful it was and how calm mm. and how sort of, uh, it was always something that I sort of, may, maybe it was because when I was a kid, my life was, seemed to me very, uh, in, in a lot of turmoil, uh, inner turmoil. And there was this sense when I would enter, uh, a Japanese space as a space that was influenced by Zen, Things seemed to calm down, and everything seemed so much, so much better, so much more clear and lucid. You know, then when I got older, I, I had a teacher when I was in grade school, when I was in sixth and seventh and eighth grade, who was into all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and one of these crazy things he would do is meditate, and I was interested in it. You know, it was like, what, what, what is this like, and and why do you do this, and he wasn't very helpful uh, <laughs> at all, uh, but it was sort of like it lit a spark in the sense that I, you know, because he would say things like, um, "Well, you look at a candle and you and you sort of you, you focus on a candle flame," which was something he must have learned from. I, I don't, maybe you know where this may have come from, but uh, to me, I, I would try it. I would light a candle in my room when I was a kid. And the light was so bright that it would burn my eyes, and it was sort of like, well, "How would you do this? You know, why? this is not really <laughs> this is yeah, not a very pleasant experience. There's some, I'm missing something, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and good. then, yeah, I mean, and then when I was in college, I, I my first semester in college, I took a course in Buddhism. Uh, when I remember a lot of things about the course, but one of the things that stood out to me was the. The discussion about non self, and that really resonated with me. I thought that was the most interesting, fascinating, and true. I mean, it just seemed to me true in a very deep way. And so I started, you know, then there was an opportunity to really do meditation. There was a sort of a meditation group on campus, and uh, you know. Uh, I, I kept doing it now when I was in graduate school I sort of get I left it behind for a while because I was in graduate school in in, in philosophy and um a lot I you know I couldn't make my peace with a number of different issues in the buddha dharma and so I sort of left it aside for a while and came back to it uh when I was uh, out of after I had sort of put that behind me and uh, you know the rest. The, the rest has been kind of continual practice for me, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so you, you you came to it. I mean, you you were kind of directly or indirectly influenced by things quite young.
0: Yeah, when you yeah. were quite
1: young. I I was. Uh, I mean, I didn't actually come to Buddhism until my fifties, wow. and um, I, I had been quite interested in other forms of spirituality. And, and in high school, I mean, I grew up in a very uh, secular Jewish home let's say and and we moved however from uh, Cleveland Ohio up into New Hampshire so we were going from a very suburban context which you know where you know most of our friends were Jewish and there was a family around and to a very ur- uh, rural context where suddenly being Jewish had a kind of identity that it hadn't had before And that made me a little more curious as to what that was about. But then a little later, I joined a kind of church group (laughs) because that was the only kind of group to join. Uh, And it was a really interesting group of kids and a wonderful uh, minister who was, it was a congregational church. So it wasn't. And so this just kind of got me into spirituality. And then I had a high school English teacher who actually wasn't one of my teachers, but became a friend who was prior to that had been a Catholic monk. And so I had been curious about this, this, his monastic life, and, and that had a, an interesting influence on me. And then, you know, I, I, I kind of dabbled in, in going into much more deeper Jewish studies, but it never really resonated at that point in college. And then I did TM, like everybody else in college in the 70s, and, and um, found it somewhat helpful. Um, I found the whole regime around it rather strange. It was uh, transcendental kept, meditation. Yeah, transcendental mm-hmm. meditation. Um, then I kept it up for a while, and then, you know, kind of life intervened, and everything was kind of put aside. I mean, when I was in the 80s, uh, I was married, and we had a kind of, you know, for a while, we joined a kind of new agey kind of Jewish. Havara community, and, and um, that, that didn't do anything. And, and then but in the mid-90s, uh, I, I just started questioning a lot of things and uh, was, uh, at that point, had divorced and, and was living with uh, a dear friend who had you know, some Buddhist background. He had a very spiritual background, and, and he introduced me to a few books the first of which I think was Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness. And then I've accidentally found this Stephen Batchelor book, Buddhism Without Beliefs. And parts of that book really resonated. And this was, I think in 1996 or 97. And then there were resources in the back of that book. So one of them at that point, I was living in New York. One of those resources I think was New York Insight. The other was Insight Meditation Society. And You know, I I went to a few meditations at New York Insight, met a few people, and then just decided to sign up for a retreat at uh, IMS. Uh, It was an eight-day retreat. It was my first retreat. I had no idea really what I was getting into. I was told on the way up with the people that I was going with that it was a, a meta retreat, which of course didn't really mean anything to me at that point, but I just went with it. And... It was a great place to start, actually. I think if I hadn't necessarily started with a loving kindness retreat, I'm not sure what would have happened. But the fact that that was my first retreat had a pretty strong influence on everything from then on, because I, I was experiencing loving kindness not only as a, a practice of cultivating loving kindness, but also as a concentration practice and as a you know a powerful start of uh, around meditation. And it was then later that, you know, the, the Vipassana aspect of practice um, became much more rooted. And then I had the good fortune to, to meet a teacher, uh, Matt Flickstein, um, who uh, was a long, long-time student of bhante Rattanas, uh, who was the founder of the Bhavana Society and a well-known monk from Sri Lanka. had been a monk since he was 10 and had written a very popular book mindfulness in plain English. And Matt, I was just fortunate to fall into that because Matt was an unusual teacher. He wasn't, you know, sort of wanting to be a superstar teacher in the way that, not that anybody wants to be a superstar teacher, but sometimes it just happens. But Matt was much more interested in working with smaller groups of students on an ongoing basis. And we worked together, I think, seven or eight years. Which, you know, was really significant because he was also involved in doing other explorations of later practices and non dual practices, such as they are, such, so to speak, non dual practices, which will no doubt be a discussion down the road with us. But, but, you know, he gave me such a solid footing to stand on to sort of move forward that it really, I was, you know, I'm really blessed to have met him. And then you know it has just obviously continued from there.
0: So. Has does he? Did he do Zen as well? Um, um we we
1: touched on Zen in, in our later work together. You know we studied, we we, we studied the Oxfording pictures uh, as they are. And, and then what was really interesting about the Oxfording pictures? In fact, I have one over my shoulder here, similar to you. I mean that picture was in my grandmother's house. And I never knew what it was. It's, yeah. it's the, it's the, I think it's the eighth picture where the the man is on the ox playing his flute as he's going back to town. And it wasn't until, you know, f- however many years later that I realized what that was and what it meant. Yeah. Um, and so, and we did some other, um, Zen study as well. The, uh, Ming, the, the writing of the third Zen patriarch, um, which has also been heavily influential in my own practice. And, so yeah, but he himself was never a Zen practitioner per se. He he just brought it into his teaching. So, so
0: but then you were looking there for you were looking for more spirituality in various times in your life, and sort of decided then that uh, that the that the stuff the practices you found in Buddhism were the best. Uh, well, expression of that, or how, how would you?
1: Um, I think what was going on was that I was I was just questioning, like particularly in the, at that point, you know, I. I now that I'm teaching, right, when, whenever, whenever somebody enters the door of a meditation hall to study meditation, to study mindfulness, something gets them there, like some problem, and it might be really serious. I mean, health-related, it might be job-related, it might be financial, it might be, well, in my case, it was relationship or relational. Just uh, my relationships, right, my close relationships were always, would always get stuck, and while I'd done therapy around that, there was something about those teachings of, on non-attachment <laughs> and non-self, as, as, uh, you, know, as, we, as you, you mentioned, that seemed to make an awful lot of sense in that context. Yeah. And so I just said, I need to look into this a little bit more, you know, and, and really learn what it means to, to, quote, be in love, you know, and, uh, you know, truly and what it means to love truly, and so all of those teachings were, you know, quite impactful. And then the notion of <clears throat> the joy of the present moment, you know, and really, really kind of taking that in fully, I think just kept bringing me back. And so, um, yeah, it was just, you know, you, you read something and it resonates, and you want to pursue it, and that's really what happened. And so it wasn't an intellectual study for me. It was always about practice and integrating and and, uh, and you know and and being curious, of course, about the teachings is not, not that never ends. And the other thing that that's so interesting is that uh, the you know any great teaching, whether it's Buddhist or any other great teaching, you can keep coming back to it because whenever you come back to it, you know you're coming from a different place and there's a different meaning, and so it's just. No matter how many times we hear the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path, you know it's like, well, where are we, where are we in relation to that now? Right. Um, at at some point within my practice, I, I let go of the goal for anything to happen, <laughs> and you know, and and once that was experienced, it's like, oh, so this is a certain level of freedom that I hadn't experienced before.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's interesting you say that because I think some people do get into to Buddhism looking for enlightenment with a capital right. E. Uh and the interesting thing is that I well, I don't know, I mean if it's interesting or not, but in any event, I I never really thought of that as a as an as a goal. I mean, I, I you know, it, it, what what I notice is just that the practices help. That's all that I notice, really. Yeah. Um <laughs> I mean, I, I was just remembering now when uh, when you were speaking about practice that uh, one of the first times I really sort of ran into Buddhism when I was a kid was actually in high school. There was a, I think she was an ex nun, as I recall. This is a long time ago, but she was an ex nun, and we had to do some kind of you know sports thing in in high school. And I wasn't very big on doing sports, but she, she had something called Zen fitness. And of course that was like, okay, there we go. Let's try and figure. And so we would do meditation while we were running, while we were jogging. And then we would come back and uh, do actual sort of seated meditation. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. And it was great. I mean, and, Uh, I, I don't think I think she was about as new to it as all of us were. <laughs> I don't think she knew a lot about. It. I mean, you know, because the the instructions were a little bit strange. I mean, it was just sort of count your breath, but there was no idea of stopping at ten. So, <laughs> so you just sort of kept, <laughs> that's great. You just you just sort of kept counting and counting and see how far you know how far you could get. She missed again. something
1: in the instruction. Yeah, that's really hilarious. Either um, that
0: or I missed something in the instruction, right. which is just as possible. But you know,
1: <laughs> I mean, it is kind of amazing, though, because I, I do remember reading Siddhartha in high school. You know, and, and for whatever reason, it didn't have much of an impact on me, I, uh, which in hindsight is really surprising to me. But, you know, high school is high school, and, and uh, I was involved in other things, clearly. But
0: And I think you're more interested in the practice anyway than that sort of in a reading about it as a...
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, that's yeah, come that way. I mean,
0: I'm more the other side. So, you know, right. But yeah.
1: What was so interesting in, in, uh, yeah, we were talking about enlightenment. I, I, I suspect there was a, a time, I know there was a time in practice cause I was talking about it the other day when it wasn't necessarily about enlightenment, but there was this, this sense that something was supposed to happen when I was meditating. I was supposed to feel a certain way. And, uh, and I, I remember very specifically being on a retreat at the Bhavana monastery, actually. in uh, I, I had this um, experience. It was a night. It was at night, and I was sitting in the meditation hall, and and I, I sort of had this. And many of us have perhaps had this this notion of kind of going into some sort of vortex, right? It was a feeling of of like just falling. And I thought, oh, great! This is really this is it, you know. And and of course, as always happens when you have that thought in your mind it ends right and i ran out to find uh what was this bante rahula who was the senior monk uh, um and and you know was all excited about having this experience and of course he just said oh yeah okay go back and meditate you know (laughs) so it was like uh it was it was it was this kind of letdown and then realization you know of some on some level took a lot longer to actually fully understand that you know it wasn't about Achieving a particular state in meditation. States are achieved, states happen, right? But it wasn't trying to achieve that state necessarily because you can't, the efforting itself gets in the way of the actual happening. So that was an interesting lesson uh, in hindsight, you know, if I had paid a little more attention to it. Because of course, I went back to try to keep having the same state, you know, and that never works. So, but yes. Uh, for me, it was always much more about practice. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. I continue to study and read and and take various classes and uh, you know met our friend, our mutual friend, Andy Olensky, and and he was very good on the scholarly side. And you know, there was there's such great resources, and there more and more, you know, as as uh, more and more people come to this, it's kind of astonishing, actually, how much there is out there for anybody and and Nowadays, you know, where in the in you know the I think later traditions, right, where the intention was, you know, the teacher would guide you and let you know when it was time to move on, and that the teachings were somewhat quote secret, especially in, in the in the later traditions. But now it's just all out there, <laughs> so people, you know, teachers have readjusted. I think how they how they work with that.
0: I think I think some of the Vajrayana teachings are still considered somewhat secret. As I, as I understand it.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they are. But that doesn't mean they're not available. It's like, you right. know, that's the world we live in now.
0: So Yeah. I mean, my own interest has been largely, I would say largely study. Um, I love practice and practice really makes the most difference. But my mind is structured in such a way that I get into the study aspect of it and I sort of have to pull myself out of it, if anything. But uh, I mean what was interesting for me is that when I was an undergraduate which is you know sort of where I was studying a lot of the stuff when I was a graduate student there really was not a lot at least that I was aware of about early buddhism um about sort of mm-hmm. the 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 pali material and other material from other recensions and what we instead what we you know we studied later buddhism uh we studied uh, a lot of the equivalent of zen or uh, Pure Land or uh, Tibetan. I mean, when I was in graduate school, there was a Tibetan professor, mm-hmm. a professor from Tibet who was teaching uh, at UW-Madison, and I took a couple of his classes. T- that later material, is ve- to me, is very scholastic. It's extremely detailed, very, very... It reminded me of the kind of philosophy I was doing as graduate student in the philosophy department. Very, very interested in very minor technical def- differences between you know ideas and you know what exactly does this term mean and how exactly is this cashed out. It's it's it, a lot of the learning there to me is very came up from centuries of very smart people arguing with each other right, <laughs> about right, very right. small things. Yeah, and they, they get angry. I mean, no, they get. It's a big deal that this sure. term means exactly, and not that. And you know, right. And it was not until uh, much later, when, for instance, I got, uh, as you say, Andy Olenski got, I, when I got involved with New York Insight, met Andy Olenski, who does who does a lot of work in early Buddhism, uh, listening and uh, listening to a lot of uh, Dharma talks by people like Bhikkhu Bodhi. I mean, Bhikkhu Bodhi's Dharma talks to me have been wonderful,
1: mm-hmm.
0: where he goes through the suttas mm-hmm. and just you know line by line and talking about. And I began to realize, uh, which is something that I remembered from when I was younger, that this early material was so much more down to earth, so much less scholastic, so much less interested in, you know, getting exactly this fine logical point out, uh, and much more about daily life.
1: Yeah, and then, and I, but I, I also think that so my I guess my question for you would be, so as you are studying a sutta. Uh, and analyzing a sutta or comparing it to another sutta, how does that inquiry impact your practice? You know, do you do you take those inquiries into your practice? I mean that would be the point. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah. The
0: the the problem, I mean yes, I do. Um and I and I, I find myself, if I have learned something new in a sutta, trying to practice with it in some whatever way happens, you know, to come to mind about that. Uh, I mean, the problem is that there is so much material in the suttas, and I'm a lay person who was trying to get videos out and other things done have a normal life. Yeah. So, you know, it it becomes clear to me that, you know, the Buddha talks about how it's much easier to practice as a monastic. The lay life is a life full of dust, as he says. And I understand exactly what he's talking about, um, that you know, if I really wanted to deal with the material in the way that he's recommending, I would have to be on full-time retreat, you know, um, pretty much.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And we'll we'll obviously continue this conversation. And I I, I think that I think it's also possible in many ways to like take one of his major teachings and let that be your teaching for the rest of your life.
0: Absolutely. Because in, in a
1: sense that it's so kaleidoscopic that, um, you know, within one teaching or sort of all the teachings and everything else is kind of, you know, geared towards specific groups or specific people. And, and it's fascinating and important. And, and, you know, just, uh, the language or at least the translations that are coming out now, which are much more accurate, <clears throat> you know, really are pointing to things very beautifully and the metaphors and all of that. So it's, it's helpful. And, and, you know, for me, it's like the, the, the two or three major teachings are enough to sort of hold me and everything else. It reminds me of the famous quote by the, the Jewish philosopher um, Hillel, you know, when somebody asked him to explain the entirety of Judaism while standing on one foot. And I think it was something like, love thy neighbor as yourself, you know, everything else is commentary. I think Jesus I think said got something right. very similar. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I yeah. mean, it was sort of like mm-hmm. everything else is just added on. Or or right. um, or Thomas Keating saying that, you know, the language of God is silence. Everything else is a bad translation. You know, so it's <laughs> like we have, you know, it's there's so much depth to one or two teachings that will hold us. And out of that, everything else can flow. So, you know, to be continued, obviously. But yeah. Um, this might be an interesting place to end and, and you know, we can come back and, and talk about, you know, more specifics about meditation or about specific teachings. But I think we know where we're coming from. So Plenty more and, to discuss, that's yeah, for sure. Exactly. So until next time. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at johnarron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Digging the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron.